You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Sorry for the glitch that we just experienced, but 3CR is back on air. Lucky a live person came along to help out and uh, the Greg Siegel, the great technical man, was there on board to save the day. Ta-da! And thank you for the caller who who rang in and uh, notified me that uh, 3CR was saving their bacon from Murdoch's uh, all-pervasive message and that uh, our silence for a second was uh, was noted. Anyway, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, this is the uh, second week live, which is great. We're leading up to Christmas, so I suppose we'll be going into summer break soon. But uh, uh, while we're here, we'll enjoy ourselves. And uh, we've got lots of material for you today, lots of events. Uh, Lots of events are happening, even though they've been moved online. And uh, we're going to kick off talking to Shirley Winton who is uh, part of the uh, Spirit of Eureka committee. Hello, Shirley, how are you? I'm good, Annie, and thank you. Um, Good morning to everyone. Yeah, 166 Eureka anniversary, but this year it's online, which is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, well, this year makes it even more relevant than I think for many years, yes. we, so the, main, the theme of this year's Eureka anniversary, very topical, is, is in the midst of the global crisis, it is right to rebel for our rights and liberty. And the fighting spirit of Eureka continues today. So it's, um, it's a theme that reflects the, the current situation, not just in Australia, but globally as well. And um, the fighting spirit um, of Eureka rebels um, is... Is, is really we, sh- we need to cherish and we should be inspired by in this period where basically um, COVID-19 is being used as an excuse to bring in um, even further and more intense um, anti-democratic laws um, and the attacks on working people's rights generally. Um, there's the economic crisis. So can I just say, um, just go through... Some of the main themes, that's the overarching theme, but we're saying that it is right to fight government attacks on people's democratic rights, for, to fight um, for workers' rights and jobs, for proper funding of public health, aged care, education, social services and benefits, for a just economic system and to end all imperialist wars, and for climate justice and a healthy environment. And they're the absolutely key issues. For um, for ordinary people today, that uh, we need to deal with. 
It was certainly teetering on the edge. You, you've got your finger on the pulse there. I mean, the uh, business of uh, attacks on workers' rights and jobs is quite extraordinary. Uh, people really did think that uh, COVID was such a significant event that it gave the opportunity to rejig, reset, even as we reset the computer this morning for 3CR, to uh, a better future. But uh, it seems that unless there is a fight, uh, if people don't push back and fight, that uh, in fact it's the people who have the vision for a better future. Oh, absolutely, Annie. Totally agree with you. And, you know, I mean, the reality is that I think a lot, you know, there was that kind of hope. There was hope by many people that, well, you know, this might be a wake-up call to, um, you know, for capital, basically, um, and um, and the powers that be to government, but it's not because the system is still there, and you know capitalism and capital still rules, and they'll take every advantage and use every excuse to squeeze more out of workers, to squeeze more profits out of workers, to and to shift the burden of the economic crisis on on the shoulders of of all of workers and ordinary people. So um, the fight is, um, is is really on, and I think that when we're entering the 2021 year, um, we should be well organised. Um, we need to be alert to the fact that the coming, you know, waves upon waves of the attacks. And, um, you know, in regard to workers' rights, the um, Frydenberg had, had really uh, broadcast... Um, their agenda, where he said the industrial relations is going to be a key, if, if, if not one of the main key issues for the government um, in this period. So the best way that I can, uh, for them, uh, the most effective way of to, to continue to increase the profits and to protect the system, basically, from collapsing, is by shifting that burden on ordinary people. And it does mean that you know um, that um, you know the recession. We we had the recession already before COVID nineteen, before it even, you know it broke out. Um, the pandemic has worsened that recession, and will be forced, and there'll be a big push for the economic burden to to, to be um, carried by you know by working people. Um, but the so there's that that aspect. But there's the other aspect, you know, hand in hand with that, is the attacks on democratic rights. And um, so, to part of the attacks on the well, main aspect of the attacks on democratic rights is precisely to suppress the struggle that the ruling class um, will be expecting. And I know that there will be resistance, that there will be outbreaks um, against the against ordinary people carrying the burden of the economic crisis. There's also the issue of climate change, the climate crisis. There's huge upheavals amongst young people. So a lot of these new anti-democratic laws um, are targeting our preparations for that resistance and for the rebellion. Um, so we we need to be really quite you know, quite alert to that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, often people think that uh, uh, people are being reactionary uh, or uh, uh, thinking um, is extreme. 
However, as it's been pointed out by many people, that uh, having a uh, safe environment and uh, working together, if they're called extreme ideas as opposed to uh, a repressive, uh, falling back on repressive, militarised police isn't extreme, uh, you know, it begs the question, doesn't it? You've got a very good, uh, interesting uh, keynote speaker this year. Okay, yes. Yeah, so uh, we've got three keynote speakers. One of them is Christy Kane, who's the National President of Maritime Union of Australia. Um, your listeners would be quite familiar with with Christy. And as most of you know, um, you know, the MUA just recently had a, a big blue, a big battle um, on the wharfs um, over the EBA, where the Patricks has led the, the fight, um, the attack, um, against against the union and against dwarfies, and they wanted to to basically uh, remove all the uh, conditions that the dwarfies that the MUA had won um, over several years. So they wanted to com- completely remove. I think there were about sixty five clauses in the EBA. Um, the other speakers are Alison Bronowski. Now people may not be familiar with Alison. Alison is a um, She's actually a former diplomat and has been very active in the anti-war movement and defender of democratic rights. So she'll be talking on democratic rights. She's also Vice President of Australians for War Powers Reform, who are campaigning for parliamentary and public discussion before Australia is involved in other, you know, goes into other countries' wars, i.e. US wars. Um, She's also, uh, I should put in, she's also one of the... um, one of the panel leaders of the IPAS, Independent Peaceful Australia Network's um, People's Inquiry into the costs and consequences of um, US-Australia lines. Um, she's, she's been quite involved in that as well. And Charlie Joyce. Uh, Charlie, people may know Charlie. He's speaking on behalf of Spirit of Eureka. He's an activist at Melbourne University Student Union and also the Workers' Student Alliance who those people who've been involved in union and working class struggles last year would have been would have seen um, the workers the young workers student alliance group and they've been out there supporting working class struggles union struggles on the picket lines um, yeah so it's um, it's a good it's a good combination of speakers and it certainly we want to we want to re-inspire that fighting spirit for justice um, We've got that Australian people, Australian working people, have that history, and we have a tradition of struggles and fighting for the right for our rights. So we need to we need we need to renew it. We we need to re-inspire ourselves with that with that fighting tradition. Before I get you to give the listeners the details, it's on the twenty ninth, yep. and the. The, the details. Can you just explain to listeners a little bit more about the uh, IPAN um, People's Inquiry? Sure, sure. So I'll give you the details for the um, anniversary. Um, <clears throat> so the, it's on the on Sunday, the 29th of November at 4pm. Obviously, it's online. Um, it's a national um Anniversary. Uh, previous years, each state held its own. Well, this year because, uh, we've decided to have a national um, anniversary, 166th anniversary. Um, it's at four o'clock on um, um, four o'clock. That's 
um, Daylight Saving Time that's in Victoria, New South Wales, so 4 o'clock online. Um, you can register for the event. Um, if you go to our Facebook page, that's the Spirit of Eureka Facebook page, You can, there is a, in the event section, you can register there, um, or you can um, or you can contact us on our Spirit of Eureka, vic3 at gmail.com. That's the our email address, Spirit of Eureka, vic3 at gmail.com. Um, but, you know, the Facebook page really has the, the actual Zoom registration contact. Um, so you do need to, we prefer people to register, but it'll also be live streamed on Facebook page. So that's on the 29th of November at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock um, for Vic in New South Wales, 3.30 for South Australia and 3 o'clock for Queensland and 1pm in Western Australia. In Western Australia, that's right. That's right. I, for some reason, I just assumed that I just really forgot that 3CR is a broadcast far wider than Victoria. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me so, about the IPAN people. Uh, okay. I've just been wondering about this. Okay, so IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, uh, if people are familiar, it's a national network of um, of community organisations, unions, anti-war groups, peace groups, who are um, advocating for an independent foreign policy. And part of that um, independent foreign policy is to is for Australia to stop participating in US wars, supporting and involving in US wars like Afghanistan, and Iraq, and Syria, and so forth. Um, we're holding a, a people's inquiry, in, a people's inquiry, um, and the purpose of it is to give a voice to to view people's views or voices whose views have, are not are not known. It's a voice to to people to express their concerns about Australia's involvement in U.S. wars and support for U.S.-led wars, about the Australia and U.S. alliance and the costs and consequences that are being um, borne by Australian people or by, the, by people. And also not just in Australia, but also overseas, where, the, where our involvement, like in Afghanistan, like in the Philippines, like in Iraq, in the Middle East, um, our, our involvement in those wars is, is, you know, is actually a cost to the people of those countries. Um, so the inquiry is, is looking at eight different areas, um, the, the eight areas of the inquiry, um, there's the first peoples, the cost to the first peoples of Australia, the social and community impact, um, military and defence, the workers and unions, the cost to workers and unions, um, the environment, the cost to the environment, the and foreign policy. Um, is that eight? I think I've got eight there. Um, well, it's a good handful anyway. <laughs> and some of this, and each of that inquiry area is led by um, a panel leader. And some of the panel leaders are um, Terry Mason. Um, people might know Terry Mason is um, is Indigenous. He's an well, he's an academic and been involved in the in the Indigenous struggles for for many years. Um, Alison Bronowski, I've said. Um, Ginny Ray, who is leading... Ginny is the former 
uh, national president of the NTU. She's leading the Workers and Unions Inquiry Panel. Uh, the Environment Panel is... Sorry, the Environment um, Area is being led by Ian Rowe. Um, the Peter Carr, who's an Anglican dean <coughs> from Brisbane, who's leading the community or social and community impact. Um, I'm sure there's... That's a pretty impressive. It's a very interesting idea. This concept. Uh, uh, there's been a number of this idea of uh, a people's in, uh, senate mm-hmm. inquiry. Effectively, mm-hmm. um, it's. It, I'm very interested to find out what comes of it. Uh, it's a very interesting activist approach to uh, yeah. creating yeah. voice. Yeah. Well, that's right, Annie, and we could have a longer conversation when you have time. But it certainly. Um, the inquiry, in, it, we wanted to emphasise the wording that it's a people's inquiry and it's not to, you know, to distance ourselves from it being seen like a, a government or a non yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, I understand. inquiry. Yeah. So, and the purpose of it is it's not just the end result, it's the process of um, IPAM members and supporters being involved in going out into the community to unions and raising and asking questions and raising the issue about um, Australia's involvement in US wars and about the alliance. So, um, and it's not just about, that's the area that I forgot to mention, it's also the economic impact so, of, of, of this alliance. So it's, 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 it's looking at Australia's overall political alliances, that's the economic, the political and military um, and it's very much tied to Australia's, you know, to the, you know, to, 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 you know, people wanting. And, and you hear that quite often they say about Australia, oh, yes, Australia is independent. But is it really independent? Do we actually, um, Australian people actually have the power to make decisions? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So no, this it's... Is what, the people, so, so people, 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 yeah, this inquiry, we haven't got much more time, but we will talk yeah, yeah. about this more uh, at another stage. Um, that people go to IPAN's uh, website and they'll find out more about this because right. I've seen and it's, it. And it's, that's right. And it's part, and it is to engage, um, it's to engage a public debate, a public discussion. And it has, you know, it has huge ramifications. And it, it is part of the, you know, making it a mass question, I suppose, is another way of, of putting it. And also seeking views of people. Thanks Sorry. for talking to me, Shirley. Thanks <laughs> for right. talking to me this morning. And, and uh, it, hmm? yep. what were you going to say? And everyone's welcome to come to the anniversary. Oh, yeah. I'll be there. Yeah. Good on you, Annie. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Well, all the best. Okay. From every corner of the world They came from all around When in 1851 They struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And cops were getting worse The diggers burned their licenses And vowed to end this curse They swore an oath Beneath the southern cross They'd stand together And break the license laws 
From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun Tried to divide them Giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it They said it's all of us or none They built a stockade While the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die The rebel miners waited For whatever lay in store And on one December morning In 1854 The redcoats attacked the camp Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun Things go their way But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day The crown conceded everything All of their demands They'd want an end to license fees The right to vote and land So here's to Joe and Charlie Waller and the rest They drew the battle lines And put crown rule to the test The diggers may have lost the battle But they quickly won the day And those shots fired in Victoria Were heard ten thousand miles away They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations They gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and, of course, Eureka, Spirit of Eureka uh, anniversary is next Sunday, 29th, and 4 o'clock in Melbourne and all the other times uh, in all the other states. And uh, there's something coming up starting tomorrow which uh, might be of interest to you on your calendar and uh, that's the online IMAC. Uh, it's uh, IMAC every year. There is a uh, rally outside the convention centre. It has been for a number of years. Uh, the um, uh, 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 look uh, Raising uh, awareness as well as... Uh, uh, protesting against the International Mining and Resource Conference, which happens down there every year. And because of COVID, that conference has gone online, but, and so has the protest. And I've got Absara on the line. Absara, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, now, I've, it's a very extensive uh, counter-conference 
that's uh, been developed uh, uh, starts tomorrow and goes to the 29th. It's pretty impressive. You guys must have been working your tails off. <laughs> you know, it's uh, actually uh, COVID has forced us to be a lot more creative in how we actually um, take our protests to, um, to the, you know, like the large mining conglomerates. And we've identified an opportunity because, as you said, because of COVID, um, the conference had to go online itself. And so we decided that at the same time that the conference was online, that we were going to platform voices of people from all over Australia and um, around the world. And literally we wanted to, what we wanted was frontline defenders and uh First Nations peoples to be able to actually speak about what is happening on the ground. Yeah, so if, uh, let's have a look at the international perspective. I mean, it goes uh, just just for people to get it into their minds. Uh, each day there is a program, and it's quite an interesting program and quite varied. And uh, there's certain elements that have similarities. So each day there's a film, and uh, there's also. Uh, uh, each day's got a focus, doesn't it? Uh, yes, that's right. So uh, the idea being is that um, we're at the uh, beginning we want to of the conference. We want to actually we've made it very much a global perspective, and um, the, the idea is that we were able to in the first couple of days to platform um, speakers from Mongolia, Kashmir, Sri Lanka. India, Eritrea, Philippines, West Papua, and also across Latin America. So the whole idea there was we wanted people to recognise that, you know, very often when we are fighting for against mining companies here in Australia, we often think about it as uh, an issue that is um, very much uh, only uh, occurring in that part of the country. But once you listen to many of these speakers, we realise that the same company's names keep coming up over and over again, and the atrocities of those companies are, are many. So it's not just only something that's happening in Australia. So, for example, we've got uh, um, people uh, speaking from Kashmir and also from Mongolia. And in both those places, Adani is um, uh, features quite prominently. So when we here are talking about the Carmichael mine in Australia... We should also be thinking about Adani's activities in other parts of the world because um, it's not what Adani is doing here is not just only um, uh, occurring just in Australia. His company's activities are broad ranging and also quite destructive in other parts of the world. Well, once you bring up Kashmir, that puts in perspective the uh, latest Modi uh, approach to Kashmir as well politically. Correct. So uh, you quickly realise who are the people behind and who are the organisations that are actually behind uh, Modi, who is pulling the strings. So it's people like Adani and Ambani, who is also another mining magnate, who want access to the minerals in Kashmir because it's an incredibly mineral-rich country. Ah, that's uh, pretty devastating, isn't it? Um, mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now let's let's look at uh, the. Um, uh, uh, you you want uh, to be a support 
to online uh, to uh, frontline activists as well. There's a very strong element of uh, not only looking at the historical approach of activism, but also a, a supportive and continuing approach to uh, creative activism in this incredibly important space. One hundred percent. That's what. So we really want to be able to uh, look at the history of, um, you know, activism, mining, uh, anti-mining activism, and especially what we really wanted to do as well is centre around um, colonial capitalism. So this whole idea of, of the fact that you know when you look at the extractivist practices of uh, mining companies. I mean, they date back about 500 years uh, when Europeans first colonised um, large swathes of the world. And they have con- continued, like, you know, what we're now seeing is neocolonialism um, and internal colonialism as well. So, you know, this is something that we want to also show is that these practices extend um, so far back and are very much rooted in... Um, the, the, practices of colonial capitalism the um you talk about the role of the police there's a mm-hmm. there's a, you want to talk you uh, are giving quite um the range of conversations that are going on in this conference are, are really truly interesting and the police tactics and activist rights plus um why police are not our friends, <laughs> are, are, are pretty topical at the moment. Definitely. I think uh, across board, uh, last year, of, of course, um, when we organised Blockade IMARC, um, the police response there was uh, so uh, unexpected and incredibly brutal. But the reality is that First Nations peoples and uh, frontline defenders have been experiencing that ever since colonisation. And, um, of course, across the globe, I mean, we know with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement is that this this kind of uh, police brutality is across the globe. It's not just only in Australia. Um, we have to understand the power structures and um, the systems that allow police, uh, of, of the police force to be incredibly brutal towards anyone who stands up to... The two systems of power. It's so interesting, isn't it, uh, that um, uh, uh, the global emergency, the climate, is uh, being massaged into a uh, not not so uh, damaging uh, or not even their kind of aspect in the uh, Murdoch uh, press and others. Uh, public relations firms. It's very important to have a conference like this, isn't it, in in relation to uh, the normalised uh, process of ex- the extractive industries. Yeah, that's true. So I, just as an example, I'm working with uh, panellists from across India, Mongolia and, um, and Sri Lanka. I mean, just to give you an idea... The, uh, the Mongolian delegation that are, that are going to be speaking at the conference, you know, for them this is incredible that they're able to take that they are able to take their struggle to a global platform and talk to people that would normally never hear their voices, and um, so even though they have never done an online platform 
and never done a Zoom uh, a, a forum. We're actually helping them up with writing one sheets and actually looking at how they can structure that um, their um, their forum and sessions. Because what that is is about empowering people who previously didn't have a voice to suddenly be able to speak to a global audience and actually uh, bypass mainstream media that for so long has shut their voices out. Um, it's, it's a big conference and uh, it goes over many days. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I remember years ago I uh, was involved in doing the promotions for a film, uh, Peter Watkins' film called The Journey, which was all about uh, going to different countries to talk to different uh, locals about the effects of nuclear war or nuclear mm. armaments. And uh, he went to all these different countries and the film was seven hours long. So people go... Oh my God, that's a bit daunting, but the point. <laughs> but the point was that people he quite expected people to get up and walk out and come back in, you know, as they expected, uh, as they were able to take in different parts of the program, and it was broken up, and they could come back at different times, and yes. that was part of the whole idea. Is that the approach you expect for people to look at the program and uh, be able to? involve themselves as much as their time will allow. That's right. And I think you hit on a really important point there, Anne, because what we have done is for most of the program, we've actually created one Zoom link. So you can literally uh, uh, turn on your computer and you can have uh, the Blockade Blockade IMARC uh, conference, which is uh, this year called Beyond uh, Mining, um, on the in the background on your computer screen, and you can always hop in and hop out um, to the different uh, programs that are being run. The only thing that we have done is anything that is uh, um, any program that might require a password, like for example the policing type of program. Um, we've created different um, Zoom links for that because that requires um, registration. But the idea being was that so that um, as you said, um, with the movie that you're talking about, we would like people to be able to hop in and hop out uh, whenever they want to, and it's very easy to um, get on and um, actually watch, um, you know, sessions that you want to watch, but also, uh, technically speaking, have it in the background and, um, you know, be able to absorb some of that information because I think there's a wealth of knowledge that um, many of the people that are speaking at the plat- uh, at these forums will be uh, imparting that, you know, we can actually learn from and think about how do we um, fight, for my- um, fight mining companies here in Australia, but also how do we create global solidarity in this fight? Because this is a shared fight. It's not, a, uh, it's not just a fight in one part of the world. It's actually a fight across the globe. Uh, tell me about the film program. So the, the film programs are short documentaries from around the um, uh, around the world, and um, the idea of these uh, documentaries is uh, documenting um, specific uh, fights against mining companies um, and how indigenous communities were able to actually stand up to these mining companies. So they're very empowering movies as well. And our first movie is. Um, Tomorrow night, 
and it's called The Condo and the Eagle. Ah, yes. They're all really interesting films. I, I've seen uh, some of these films before and uh, when they first came out, and uh, they're all... You, you've done a great job. You guys have done a great job <laughs> cu- curating all the different aspects, and I assume different... Like, you were... You were uh, in charge of a certain strand and other people were in charge of another strand. Uh, how long have you been working on this? Um, so we started working on it in um, July, but the idea of uh, what we wanted to actually do was before we even set out to go out and find um, the activists and experts and whatever from around the world, we actually wa- uh, set out to write up a couple of Objectives about the um, about this uh, collective, yeah. and also some prim- uh, some underlying principles. So that was something actually took us a long time to do because we felt that if we got that one right, then actually the program would come together because we would have some a very strong foundation on which to actually build this program on. And I think once we did that, it was um, uh, uh, it actually took us about two months to. Do come to an agreement about what our objectives and our principles were. But once we did that, um, then curating the program was a lot easier. Yeah, well, you know, that's what they say about most things. If you do some good, solid thinking, you get a better result. (laughs) That's right. And I really would like to encourage as many people to come, uh, you know, um, to the forum because what you will be hearing is very new perspectives, perspectives that we have never heard of, of, of because, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, activists are on the ground. For example, um, the Mongolian activists are in the Gobi Desert um, monitoring Rio Tinto's activity there. Um, just to give you a bit of an example of just how, um, uh, you know, that's a, that's a voice that we would, most of us will never have heard of from. You know, so this uh, person who... Uh, is um, is a long-term uh, anti-mining activist, is going to be talking about what Rio Tinto is doing, the way in which their the fraudulent accounting practices in um, in uh, Mongolia, which effectively means that very little of money from the mining activity in Mongolia is actually seen by Mongolian people. It also it will focus on um, the fact that in the Gobi Desert, Water is a scarce resource, which is actually um, water that is actually under uh, is um, uh, underground water. And very similar to here, exactly. And Rio Tinto is, um, you know, so you know, utilizing this water. And what that actually means is, what does that mean for nomadic tribes people who have, for thousands of years, you know, relied on this uh, water to survive? That's outrageous. Uh, very little water. Mm. Oh, yes, yeah, shocking. It's but shocking. I think this is what we, you know, we will learn a lot about is um, some of these things that we haven't really put two and two together. And once we start to see a piece of a puzzle together, we start to see just how um, the atrocities of just one mining company. You know, we're not talking about uh, the many mining companies, it's just one mining company. So it really shows that. Um, you know, if you've got people fighting against Rio Tinto here in Australia, we should be connecting with the um, activists in Mongolia. And we should be uh, connecting with, for example, the activists in West Papua who are also fighting Rio Tinto there. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's like an octopus, isn't it? Uh, Kraken. Mm. Um, before I let you go, Absara, because I'm sure you've got plenty of the other things <laughs> to do, um, just tell people again uh, how they link up with this, uh, so that they can look at the program. Yes. So, uh, for anyone who would like to um, come along, um, you just have to go to blockadeimark.com forward slash action dash events forward slash and you register online on the website. So effectively, uh, once you register, uh, you will get a, a Zoom link for pretty much the whole uh, for the whole uh, conference unless it is an event that requires uh, additional registration requirements, um, like, for example, the policing program, for example. Well, well, people will yeah. need to look at the program properly so that they can work out which things they want to focus on. So thanks Sorry. very much for talking to me this morning, Absara, and uh, the best of luck, uh, strength, more strength to your arm. Thank you very much, Anne. I really appreciate the time as well. This week on Over the Wall, we speak to Lindsay Jackson, one of the coordinators from the Not My Debt campaign, which has been tremendously successful in supporting people around robo-debts. And we also speak about the recent court ruling and class action against the government in these illegal robo-debts. Welcome, Lindsay, from Not My Debt, and regarding the, the court case settlement through Gordon's legal action, would you like to talk about that first, please? The class action that Gordon Legal were taking, they've settled it. The settlement is for $112 million in compensation, and overall, the outcome is still dubious and disappointing, which has really been the theme of everything relating to robo-debt. You're sort of getting somewhere, but we're never, ever getting really to the bottom of what's gone on, particularly when it comes to anyone being accountable or finding out just how this happened. So this is the class action that the Gordon Legal team have been putting together, very much supported by Bill Shorten. And it was a class action to basically take the government to court over the legality of robo-debt and also to get money paid back and some compensation. Federal court class action. Yeah, exactly. And the biggest in Australia. So huge in terms of the number of people that it affected and any potential payouts. And the reason that it was made possible was because of the illegality that was found under the Victorian Legal Aid Amato ruling, which found that the debts that had been averaged were probably calculated unlawfully. So once that was in place, then that sort of opened the legal opportunity for a larger class action. 
so that's been going on for a little while, like all of the pre-court stuff to actually get that heard and maybe about a year, maybe a bit longer. Along each way, every time they've had mediation, there's been a bit more information that's come out. So the government did issue an apology. Earlier this year, they actually announced that they were going to pay back debts and they have been going through that process of paying back debts. And so what happened yesterday was the settlement to stop it from going to any further along the court process, which was essentially to say, we admit we were wrong. This is what we're paying back. And there's $112 million in compensation for robo-debt victims. Now, there's so many people involved in that pool. It works out to about $280 per person, plus the legal team will take out all of their fees. So what that actually means is a little bit difficult to actually say. When you say $280 per person, the settlement's not for repayment of robo-debts that people have paid that has already occurred. This is actual compensation for the stress that people have received? Yeah, exactly. So the inconvenience and the time. And that $280, we don't know how much any individual will get. That's $112 million divided by the 400,000 people that were part of the class action. What anyone will get is difficult to know. And the thing that makes this really disappointing is... No one has lost their job over this. We're still no closer to understanding how on earth this happened, what this means for government services and programs where they might want to use automation again. And we know that within Centrelink and human services, they're using automation for things like the injury card around cashless welfare, causing all of these other problems as we use automated systems to create decisions. And because it's not going to court, a judge isn't looking at that. No ministers have to have questions that they're compelled to answer or anything like that. So really, from the community point of view and like that next step, it it really is where uh, something like a Royal Commission we think is actually really needed because there's just no way to compel any of these ministers or senior staffers to talk and to understand exactly how this happened. And it's such a disaster. We're paying back a billion dollars that was taken from people illegally. And it's just shocking. No one's been held accountable. No one wants to talk about how it happened. It's just shocking. Really came out of that neoliberal ideology, like even going back to the day when Joe Hockey was the federal treasurer and making that statement on budget night that the age of entitlement is over. And then I guess in the years before, going back to Howard, et cetera, just punitive measures upon people receiving welfare to make life so hellish and completely disregarding the fact that a social safety net is what makes our society safe. It's what protects people. Hundreds of thousands of people are in genuine need and, and distress. Yeah, exactly. And in 2017, when this really kicked off, you had the minister at the time, Alan Tudge, coming out saying that the police would be after you and that they were going to track people down and make people pay these debts. And they had the Australian Federal Police logo going on debt letters mm. from Centrelink that people were being sent. Like We had people that were contacting us in absolute fear, like absolute fear that they were going to go to prison because they might have made a genuine error five years ago and what did this mean now and people that were worried about losing their kids or losing their house the level of fear that was struck was just appalling 
and real. Part of the strength that Not My Debt has done, which has been to collect stories on that. So we have this archive of people just being in absolute fear. They still continue to be and really needing that peer support, which was what we've been able to do through the Facebook page and, and Twitter all as volunteers. We've got one volunteer in particular who's just spent countless hours. Like she's helped take people, she's helped take over a hundred people through to the AAT, which is the Administrative Appeals Mm -hmm. Tribunal. And all of those things set the precedent that then the class action can leverage from. Because without that, you don't know the depth or the administrative or legal precedent that's set. And having a dedicated volunteer that's so quickly responsive like that and also, as you said, having that forum for peer support, when people encounter these situations, it's panic, it's not knowing what to do. And so there's both empathy where people can understand what people are going through on a, on a psychological level, but also giving each other practical advice. I did this, I did that, you know, don't give up, keep trying this, etc. Oh, absolutely. And without people doing that and doing that with each other, then we just wouldn't have gotten to the depth that we have gotten. And it's really quite incredible to be involved in such a a strong and supportive community project where you see people that are genuinely helping. And I think that really this whole disaster has made people really think about that narrative around people on Centrelink and really made people question, be really frustrated with letting it erode or letting it turn into this awful department and people really thinking about how, you know, how great it is that Australia does have a social safety net. But the fact that we just keep turning it into this organisation that's so disgusting to deal with and creates fear and it's awful. So it's really heartening to have humanity in the middle of that where really people just helping each other um, just to be kind and just because, you know, life's difficult enough without the crap of government (laughs) putting pressure and loops and hurdles in front of you. And talking about the crap of government, going back to what we were talking about at the start of the interview with the class action, now meaning that the people who are responsible for the illegality of robo-debt not being now able to be held accountable whereas the people that have been recipients, as you said, have been receiving letters like with police markings on it and had all these threats of legal action where the people at the top that designed this unlawful scheme are are going to get off. Yeah, well, they're not only going to get off, they're going to get promoted (laughs) and they're going to get moved around and the damage that they've done is just going to be forgotten. And also, we're not going to learn any lessons around how problematic this sort of thing is. Using data in this way and using automation preceded the Liberal government and it was something that was started with the Labor government. Now, the problem then, you build something or you build an idea and then you hand it over to someone else that's going to amplify it and do further harm with it because doing so fits within their ideology unless you're really going to do all that transparently, we start to create real problems. I think cashless welfare is one of those examples. And I see cashless welfare and what's happening with that and 
you've got organisations that will talk about how it's negative, but they just don't have the ability to create the momentum to really get people angry and mobilised in the same way that we were able to do, that the community was able to do with the robo-debt movement because none of us got paid. Like, this was all volunteer activists. So we don't lose any government funding by coming out and speaking up about this. The problem is that it takes so much energy. And I know you'd you'd have lots of listeners that have been involved in lots of different community groups and movements and welfare rights or all of those things. It takes so much energy to kind of keep at it and bring people together and keep people mobilised that it's really, really hard to maintain. And, And I'm really just in awe because we're four years on and the fact that there are still people that work on this and care about this and are helping people is just it's just incredible really this is a public service announcement and number two you have the right to food money providing a cause you don't mind a little investigation g'day my name is margie thorpe You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we're going to move to, oh, I have to say, the -the over-the-wall segments over the last few weeks have been absolutely fantastic. So we're uh, thanking Peter Davis for his great work and uh, up-to-the-minute investigation into what is a... uh, corrupt underbelly of our social service system, I'll have to say. Uh, And uh, the problem is, of course, that uh, most people don't seem to be outraged, as they should be. But anyway, Peter fights a good fight, and uh, we're now going to go and talk to another person who's fighting the good fight, David Glantz. G'day, David. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Good. Now, you were outside the Magistrates' Court on uh, Wednesday, it was, when Chris Breen from RAC, uh, Refugee Action Collective, was being, um, well, facing charges uh, of incitement. Can you tell us, uh, our listeners, about how extraordinary this is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think most people here who are listening will at some point have put an event up on Facebook. It might have been for a birthday party or a barbecue, but it might have been for a protest or it might have been for a meeting or a forum. Chris Breen has been charged under the 1958 Crimes Act with the charge of incitement, and essentially the case against him is he put up a Facebook post. The Facebook post was an event for the Refugee Action Collective, and that event was a COVID-safe car convoy back on Good Friday, April the 10th, from memory. And we were very concerned uh, about COVID, and we were particularly concerned about the potential for COVID to spread into what is essentially the prison at the Mantra Hotel on Bell Street in Preston, where there are about 65 guys who have been brought here from uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, supposedly for medical treatment. And they're locked up um, 23 hours a day in hotel rooms. And they're surrounded by guards who come and go. And clearly there was always, and there continues to be the risk, 
that those guards could bring COVID into what is a very cramped uh, space. And we decided we had to do something about this, and we organised a car convoy to draw attention to the uh, situation for the men in the mantra and calling for them to be released into uh, into the community where they could live um, in homes and self-isolate, but in a way that has some humanity about it, like the, like the rest of us were doing. And um, on the day, uh, people formed up in cars uh, to, to head down to the mantra, and we looked around and Chris wasn't there. And we weren't quite sure why Chris wasn't there because, you know, he was absolutely very much part of the process. So people got in their cars and it was one person or two people from a household per car. You couldn't get safer than that. It was safer than going down to Bunnings, which was still open at that point. It was safer than going and getting a drive-through COVID test because there was no need to wind down your window. And the car set off, drove up uh, Bell Street, round the corner into... Hotham Street by the Mantra Hotel and straight into a couple of dozen police. Um, And 30 people were fined that day, um, $1,652 fines for the crime of sitting in their car. Um, But really, the crime, so-called, was to protest about the situation of the men in the Mantra. Yeah, it it was quite amazing, wasn't it, David? Because I talked to Chris about uh, the police coming to his house and uh, charging him with incitement and uh, taking him down to the cells and uh, uh, confiscating his uh, computer, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, and as he, and I asked him, you know, were they being uh, doing social distancing? You know, were they concerned about uh, the virus and? Uh, that appeared to not uh, be registering with the people who were taking him in. Not at all. So we discovered later that what had happened is, as you described, Chris ended up spending nine hours in police custody. Um, And we are very concerned. We're concerned for Chris uh, as a a comrade in the struggle and a, a leading member of the Refugee Action Collective. But we're also very concerned about the precedent this sets. Now, when Chris appeared in court on Wednesday, um, it was online, uh, but we, we held a symbolic in-person protest just to make it clear that we stand with Chris. Um, the prosecution admitted that really this, this provision of the Crimes Act has never been used. There's no precedent. There's no case law to look to. In other words, some bright spark went through the law and found a, an unused and obscure section of what I imagine would be a very long piece of legislation and decided to use it against uh, against people in the context of, of COVID. Now, this is very, very worrying because the charge of incitement says that you are encouraging other people to uh, do something which might be against the law. Now, obviously, if I was inciting you to rob a bank, um, that no one would raise too much of an eyebrow if I got, uh, got arrested for that. But posting a Facebook event for a protest which was COVID-safe and which was being done out of compassion, empathy, concern and solidarity with vulnerable people, is that incitement or is that an act of humanity? And we'd very much argue that charging someone with incitement in this context is opening the door for this to be used against people in all sorts of circumstances. Say you're involved in a campaign group 
which has marched down the street before now, and the police say, no, you can't march down the street, and you're the person who puts the Facebook event up um, uh, on, online, you could then be charged with inciting people because the police will say you were encouraging people to march down the street. Uh, if you're a union organiser and you put up a, a Facebook post calling on people to rally uh, in a community picket, as it's been called all too often, out, outside the gates of, the, of where the strike is taking place, that union organiser could be charged with incitement because he or she is encouraging people to turn up to a place where they may or may not break the law. And so the ramifications are enormous, and I think that's why so many people have signed on to our defence campaign so rapidly, including a dozen union branches and, uh, and various committees, all the Greens MPs in Victoria, four Greens senators, including Lydia Thorpe and Janet Rice from Victoria, countless civil libertarians, um, and, of course, hundreds and hundreds of individuals. So what happened on Wednesday, David? Well, on Wednesday... The law being the sort of thing that is like watching paint dry? Yeah, in terms of the court case, it's all going very slowly. This is actually the second appearance uh, online. And, of course, Chris is is working. He's had to take time off work. He's a a school teacher, a high school teacher. He's president of his union branch. He's a state councillor with the Australian Education Union, which I'm pleased to say has got his back on this one. Um, But really it's slow because the prosecution is trying to establish an argument on something that's never been argued before. Um, And they they failed to complete that process on Wednesday, so Chris will be back in court, probably online, um, for potentially a full day on um, the 27th of January. So all of this is still building up to the real court case, um, which is will happen sometime next year. And the prosecution really wants to make this stick. They're not just having a go at Chris. They're having a go potentially at everyone listening to this program, uh, because I'm sure there are many activists listening to 3CR. And by the way, 3CR is a supporter of the defence campaign. They've already indicated if they lose the case against Chris, they will appeal. So we expect this one to run and run and run because the police want to find a new handy weapon to bash us on the head, to make people scared to even organise protests in the first place. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous. Um, Well, we'll keep an eye on what's going on here. And uh, I've got a a compatriot in the studio and uh, he... uh, raises an important notion of incitement on social media capital uh, platform, also returns the discussion in social media or a social media, a media platform. Oh, is, is the media a, um, a, a, a platform? I mean, why don't you ask the question yourself? Go on. Go on, Jordan. Sure, I might as well. Thanks, David. Um, look, one of the no things that this raises an issue for me is that incitement is, this is in the context of, a social media platform. And I guess this raises one recurring sort of theme about social media is that, is it a media platform at all? Um, But also because this is a media platform that is uh, purely accessible through capital. So it's not a broad-ranging media platform in the same way that, um, 
I'll say putting up posters would be, um, where it's a, a bit more sort of smaller scale. Um, I was hoping that you could speak to that sort of front. Is does you know the social media context change the nature of this particular case? Well, it, it's interesting that of course Facebook isn't being charged with incitement. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's Chris, and if if Chris, uh, as he did, put out a media release um, as as a spokesperson for Rack. Um, and if he'd been interviewed, say, by, let's say, 3CR Breakfast Show, would 3CR Breakfast Show uh, producers and presenters be charged with incitement for allowing Chris to encourage people to join uh, the Good Friday car convoy? Uh, so uh, clearly um, there are all sorts of implications. At the moment, they're going for the person who hit the, the enter button on the Facebook post. And that's really, in technical terms, what, what their ca- uh, case revolves around. Um, what does that say about social media? I think it says that reality is is most of us use social media not just for fun, but also for political organising, and that if it becomes difficult or risky to post on social media, that will have a chilling effect. Um, I mean, when you go and do a poster run, you could get caught and busted for for bylaws, um, but the reality is uh, once the poster's up and you walk away, no one ever knows who it was, uh, who had his hand in, or their hand in the glue bucket. But with social media, clearly there's a line of responsibility, and I think that's what, what the police are um, are working on. Thanks for talking to us, David. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Not at all.
Yeah, back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and the newest member, of course, which is Jordan, who wasn't going to say anything, but now he did. And then I congratulated him. Ah, all the things that happen when it's a live program. But uh, now we're going to talk to Matt Kunkel from the uh, uh, Migrant Workers Centre, which which is based at uh, Victoria Trades Hall Council. And uh, coming up is a uh, Migrant Worker Conference uh, g'day, Matt. How are you? Good, thanks, Annie. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, but there's some more important things uh, be- before we talk about the conference. Not that the conference isn't important. Uh, you've got some runs on the board at the uh, Migrant uh, Workers Centre. Uh, you've you've just uh, tallied uh, $1 million clawed back from uh, wage theft. Yeah, we've... Um pretty excited about it actually so we were doing our sums over the course of the time that we've been open and found out that we've managed to work with migrants to recover more than a million dollars in stolen wages superannuation and other entitlements and help people get work cover where they've been rejected things like that so um it's a real you know the team's really excited about um the achievement but it's a, a real show i guess just how bad some of those workplace conditions and workplace exploitation is in Victoria. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it does show that organising works, but it also shows that, uh, I mean, at the moment uh, with COVID, uh, people on visas and migrant workers were really heavily hit. Um, and the fact that, uh, what is it, uh, is it, how, what is the percentage of uh of work, workers uh, upholding the economy uh, that come from the migrant pool? Yeah, so it has been a tough year for migrant workers. Um, and the percentage before COVID was that more than 10% of the workforce were made up of migrant workers on temporary visas. And obviously very many, many more who are permanent residents or have become citizens. Um, since COVID, the numbers of some types of temporary visa holders have gone down, but there's still, you know, more than a million temporary visa holders in Australia, despite the the government's attempts to stop them out. Now, it's interesting because there's been a lot of propaganda around uh, needing fruit pickers and uh, all this sort of stuff. But what's really um, is shown is that the, uh, the pay is bad, the conditions are worse, and the power relation uh, imbalance is extreme. Oh, absolutely. Um, what we have in Australia is a visa system that creates a double precarity. So, you know, we have pre- precarious workplaces, casual employment, um, sham contracting, but we also have a visa system that means that workers have this extra layer of vulnerability of, or precarity rather, where their visas, you know, they're under a threat of their visa being taken away very hard to get onto a permanent visa so people are on this constant treadmill of temporary visas which means um, you know sometimes they're linked to their employer those sponsored visas um, whether the employer can basically tell them well if you don't like it well you can you know go home in inverted commas um, but you know when you've been a temporary visa for nine or ten years this is this it is wears a bit thin doesn't it yeah absolutely yeah. Um, but that's a, and you know we've We've seen, Annie, during the, the course of the year and over the time that we've been open, that it's not just farm workers, it's not just you know people working in hospitality, but 
we've um, we've organised with workers from all all parts of the economy. It's, the truth is that migrants uh, migrants move Australia, they feed Australia, they build Australia, and they care for uh, Australia. And it's one of those things that you know migrants make Australia work, and um, it's part I think um, of the the great shame of this nation that we don't we don't do more to support um, them and make them equal partners in our in our society. Part of the uh, Migrant Workers Centre's uh, brief is to uh, support and to create solidarity. And this is where this conference comes in, doesn't it? I, I see that it's a very practical uh, approach to a conference. No no fat in this conference. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah, no, it's... Um... We, we wanted to have a, a much, uh, I guess, longer or wider conference, but, you know, the pandemic has created a, a challenge for us there. But in a way, we thought that it would be useful to think about the pandemic and the recession um, in, in, in in how it deals with migrant workers or how, or how migrant workers have faced both of those things. So our, um, our conference is actually going to be three sessions over three evenings next Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, the first will look at um, how migrant workers have been affected by the pandemic, but how they've also organised against uh, against their employers um, who have tried to put them in danger and dangerous health and, uh, occupational health and safety conditions. The second will look at the recession and what happens to migrant workers in the recession, looking back a little bit at um, the 1990 recession, what happened to migrants there, but also what we expect will happen to migrant workers during this existing and coming recession. And then the third, we'll look at rebuilding our social safety net and being more inclusive and having a, a, a human-faced migration program that includes everybody. So it is hopefully a practical conference as well. There's been a, a large group of um, activists and community leaders that have come together to draft a, a draft conference statement, which will be really the themes and the um, and the demands the Migrant Workers Centre will campaign around in 2021. So that's um, and that's available on the conference portal for people to read. Yeah, so it's uh, five to six thirty on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and that's uh, right. and uh, is it open to uh, people who aren't migrant workers? Are you hoping uh, for a broader church yeah absolutely so uh obviously the many of the speakers that we've we've got are um both migrants but also people that work with migrants um but we're you know everyone's welcome to come along uh and and be involved this is um migrant worker issues and organizing for better rights to migrants is not just for migrants to do it's for all of um it's for all of us to to work together in solidarity with them and to and to build a better country together Thanks for talking to us, Matt. No worries. Thanks, Annie. Join the global slut walk movement to end slut shaming and victim blaming. Tune in to 3CR on November 29 at 1pm. Turn it up loud and let the speeches fill the streets. Tell the world, even in a pandemic, we will not be silenced. Slut walk, it's a controversial name, not a controversial message. Slut walk Melbourne, it's a 3CR supporter. Well, I know that uh, there hasn't been a lot coming out of your mouth this morning, Jordan, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's nice to have a compatriot, a new team member, 
Yes, thank you. I'm actually really looking forward to working with Solidarity Breakfast. It's um, it's an honour. I was listening to it back when I was in Canberra and, um, you know, hoping that I can bring a lot on, especially teaching issues and um, uh, how that's been not only impacted by the pandemic, but um, uh, some of the ongoing sort of struggles that are within the education sector to the program. But yeah. it's also just great to be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, and you're with... Annie and uh, Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast and we're coming to the end of the program this morning and uh, I went off and had a chat with, well not really, I did it by uh, remote control on a computer (laughs) Mm. (laughs) because you can Mm. and that's the good Mm. thing about computers and phones. Mm. Uh, I spoke to Steve Jolly. Now Steve Jolly is a Yarra City Councillor. He's been returned um, to the council. He's a socialist. And uh, it was quite fascinating to find out that uh, what's happened at Yarra since the uh, local council elections. And the reason for why this is so fascinating is because it gives an insight into uh, one of the most progressive councils that we have, but also uh, where councils fit and uh, how your voice as a community member might insert itself into this uh uh, local community uh, conversation. So let's hear about what Steve had to say about his first week back. So congratulations for uh, your re-election and you were returned uh, with a huge uh, retu- uh, vote count, correct? Yeah, I've got um, 25% more uh, people voting for me than I did four years ago. So it's a fifth term. So I'm very, um, very happy. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, the interesting thing about Yarra Council is that there's now a, a solid block of uh, five Greens, which has uh, caused uh, certain outcomes. Uh, one, uh, the new mayor. Uh, can you tell us about that vote? Um, well, Yarra now has got the first Green majority council, I think, in Victorian history. Um, 20 years ago, we had the first Green councillor in Yarra, the first Green mayor soon after. Um, so congratulations to the Greens. Um, I think uh, when we're looking at the Greens at a local level, I think we have to be scientific and look at it, not just what people say about themselves, but what they actually do. I think that um, in politics, the left and the right, the left are just as bad at this as the right. They throw around adjectives all the time, um, usually in an insulting way, um, rather than um, look at things scientifically. So I think, for example, at a federal level, at a national level, Adam Bans is clearly to the left of the Labour Party on industrial relations, on immigration, on the economy, on the environment. No one, no one can, even Labour apologists like Dan Badham and friendly Geordies would have to say, oh, we don't vote Green because they never become government. They would never be able to seriously argue that they're not to the left of the Labour Party. But at a local level, including here in the city of Yarra, in the inner northern suburbs of Melbourne, um, the Greens, no matter what they say about themselves in the posters and the propaganda at election time, um, budget after budget, issue after issue, they've had a um, on economic issues, on bread and butter issues. They've often had, um, really, there's no other way of describing it, but a neoliberal position. So a few weeks ago in the Yarra budget, in the middle of the worst recession we've had since the 1930s, um, they jacked up rates and charges and slashed six million dollars worth of capital works or deferred six million dollars worth of capital works projects um, at a time when. Um, Small businesses and poor people in the area were suffering badly. It was exactly the opposite of what their national leaders are calling for, um, Adam Bant, who's also the federal member. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, last night they 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 uh, they used their position to uh, to grab the mayoralty, which is their right. Um, and um, it'll be very very interesting to see now um, what what that actually means. Will will it be any different than in the past? I, I would suggest that they will maintain their neoliberal position on council, um, and this is going to be particularly hard for people. Uh, in the middle of this recession. Well, one sign was that the uh, deputy mayor is now a paid position. Well, we were told last night by officers that we always have a deputy mayor. Um, it's a meaningless, relatively meaningless position. It's just that the mayor doesn't turn up. They chair the meeting. They don't have any executive authority or anything of that character. Neither does the mayor, by the way. Um, and it's a non, you know, it's a non non remunerated position um, because I think last year maybe the deputy mayor maybe chaired one meeting more a year. Uh, we were told last night that um, that the the state government changes to the local government act by the state government here in Victoria mean that from now on the, 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 the deputy mayor will be paid by ratepayers. It'll be somewhere between the $26,000 a year that councillors get in an allowance and $80,000 that the mayors get. So I said, well, on that basis, we shouldn't have a deputy mayor. Why, why create a position that's, that ratepayers are going to have to pay for to do absolutely nothing? Um, can you imagine if, you, if all you had to do was chair one meeting in 12 months for three hours and you got, let's say, $45,000. I mean, that's like 15K an hour. Um, so on that basis, when, when everyone is suffering, when businesses and, and people haven't worked for, you know, uh, nine months or more in many cases because of the COVID recession, for us to be like putting our snouts in the trough and um, using t- ratepayers' money to fund the deputy mayor's position to do jack shit, it's criminal. And um, I moved that we didn't have a deputy mayor. The other socialists on the council, Bridget O'Brien, supported me. The five Greens and the two um, independents um, voted for this position, and um, it's pretty, it's, it's really, really annoyed the locals, I've got to tell you. Yeah, it sounds like it would. Um, you've got a very uh, clear understanding of what it is that you want to achieve. Can you tell my listeners some of the things that you think are really important to focus on? Well, councils in Victoria are not like most councils all over the world, like in other. Western democracies and other advanced capitalist countries, they're much weaker. It's not like Brisbane. It's not like London. It's not like even Geelong, um, which is an exception to the rule. Um, But the one power that they do have is planning. Hundreds of millions of dollars of development applications, developers put in at Richmond Town Hall, as they do at all the councils in Melbourne, um, throughout throughout the city, uh, for for high-rise development. And the council, the nine councillors who are elected, determine on those matters. They decide yes, no, or yes with some changes. And obviously the bad guys can appeal to VCAT and they usually win when they do so, but it's huge power that the council have. But the rules, the local planning rules are really, really weak. So I wanted to change the local planning rules to incorporate, to make sure that all big developments, number one, have inclusion rezoning. What that means is that have a percentage, I say 20% low cost housing. The second thing is that all big developments have to, um, will have to be mandated to have renewable energy. 84% of emissions in the inner city comes from the powering of our offices and buildings and homes with uh, fossil fuel derived energy. We could wipe that out or most of it out if we used mandated renewable energy and also change other aspects of the rules, which is a little bit more technical, which will mean we get better results. You only have to walk through the streets of Yarra, down Burnley Street, down Wellington Street, or in fact, anywhere really in, in, in Melbourne, even outside of Yarra, to see what a mess we're making of planning. The developers are just in this orgy of profit, this orgy of profit but for average people, um, it hasn't impacted or helped the homeless crisis, couch surfing, rental stress, and it's just a developer's paradise. And 
the, even the units we are building, they're, they're really poor standard in many cases, you know, with bedrooms with no natural light. You've got um, really, really, really tiny little dog boxes, middle-class ghettos, really, and planning is totally messed up. So changing those rules would mean um, helping climate change. It would mean helping homelessness as well as creating a better built form in the inner city for, for people and pushing back against the developers a little bit. So um, that was what my platform was when I stood for mayor last night. And unfortunately, I lost to the green, but I'll still be fighting for that on the ground. And then on top of that, there's all a whole pile of other things, which, you know, I'm sure three CR listeners in general terms would agree to, like rebuilding the public housing association resident groups on the three big estates that we've got in Yarra, um, you know, making sure that the next budget is expansionary, that we're supporting poor people, unemployed people, disadvantaged people in this time of recession, and we're not kicking them in the teeth like we did in the last budget. Um, so they're the type of things that I'm, you know, that I'm going to be fighting for um, with the community over the course of the next four years. Now, tell me, um, the uh, Labor government's um, or uh, development overlay. There's been lots of conversations about this. Can you tell me a little bit about how the overlay affects planning and the local council? Well, I mean, are you referring to the fact that because of COVID, that this, the state government are taking some um, development applications out of the hands of council so that they can determine them themselves? So the, the log- if that's what you're asking, then what's happening is that because the state government is trying to keep the economy ticking on and making sure people like me, like construction workers, are um, still working, um, and also keeping their developer friends happy too, let's be honest about it, They've, they've, they've chosen some um, controversial uh, planning applications for, for, for example, very, very high-rise development in a low-rise area with bad environment and standards with no, low, with no low-cost housing. And rather than let the council and the community work through it and make it better, they've taken it out of their hands to give it a quick approval. Now, I understand on one level, you know, um, it's great to get everybody back to work as soon as possible, but it's the arbitrary and secretive methods that they're using that makes this really undemocratic and really dodgy if they were to say for, for example you know everything over four stories we're going to decide on from now on we're not going to leave it to the councils i'd still disagree with that but at least it would be upfront and open and we can have that debate but what they're doing is they're saying this particular development over here we're going to decide on uh, and that one over there we'll leave to the council and and there's no explanation as to why that the first one was chosen to be done by the state government and the second one was left to council so it opens it opens up to um to corruption really and especially in different hands because it's secretive it's uh, there's no logic there's no ex- logic that's explained at least to the public and to the media and that's what's so dodgy about it um and i and i just think that you know the idea that councils and the community are going to stop all development if we leave it in their hands, well, you only have to look at your eyes, open your eyes and see the cranes, the number of cranes that are all over the city of Yarra, that are all over the city of Melbourne, that are all over the city of Moreland, all over the city of Barabin and so on and so forth. So anyone who thinks that, that, you know, that we're going we're to destroy the construction industry if councils in the community have any say on the matter, it's just, again, it's unscientific, it's just bullshit. Um, and I think this is all about just keeping their developer friends happy and using COVID actually as an excuse to brush aside democracy and the democratic checks that the community have on dodgy development. Do, do you um, have any opinion about the uh, announcements that state governments uh, made about uh, injecting funds into public housing? Um, well, 
into social housing. So it's social housing, is it? It's social housing, not public housing. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's definitely not public housing, unfortunately. But 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 let's start with the positive. The fact that five point three billion dollars been pumped in, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of, of new units will be built, um, with a lot lot put aside for Indigenous people, a lot put aside for uh, disabled people, and and and, and the biggest expansion of, of housing low-cost housing in Victoria for a long time. That's got to be welcomed, and it shows the pressure that the government is under from the community to say that, you know, in the middle of this housing boom, you know, not, you know, COVID aside, um, and yet it hasn't had any impact in making it easier to buy a house, to rent, to get people off homelessness and, um, and rental stress. So that there's obviously a crisis going on. So the, the fact that they've spent this money is a good thing. Um, obviously, the devil is in the detail. We want to ensure that they're not going to, shut down public housing and replace it with social housing and private housing like they've done recently in some of the walk-up estates, for example, at Northcote and other parts of Melbourne. We want to make sure that, um, that this money is to mainly towards public housing because that's where you know, the rents are the lowest, where the residents have got more say, more rights as residents than they do in social housing, let alone in private housing. And, um, you know, because I've seen social housing, what's being social housing before, being portrayed as social housing before, actually being a 10-year lease on a unit supplied by a private developer that they get back after 10 years, and it's basically just a slightly lower rent for a short period of time. That's one extreme. Um, so we want the devil is in the detail, but over, overwhelmingly it's, it's a good thing. Um, but now it's, it's really important that we ensure that we push harder and ensure that this is not just handed over to developers, um, but it's actually used. Um, to, to get shovel-ready social housing, but in particular public housing built across the state because uh, they're now saying there's 100,000 people on their public housing waiting list. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. It was nice to hear from Steve Jolly and get an update about what's going on. Uh, Jordan, we'll hear from you more next week, Hopefully. no doubt. Hmm. Yep. yep. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.